Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Say you're a professional landscaper. You're not just tough. You're professional grade. And so are your tools. Because you got best-in-class Echo X-Series products. You got a perfect balance of power, weight, and performance from a professional-grade 56-volt battery system. Max-out battery tech that gives 100% power till a 0% charge. Echo X-Series means best-in-class tools for best-in-class pros. So when we say Echo is professional-grade, we mean it. Echo. Power on and on. Red Baron's new fully loaded hand-tossed style pizza is so full of toppings. Hold on there, partner. That there pizza is big enough for the both of us. With a half pound of toppings and a soft, chewy crust, it sure is. Problem is, though, this town ain't. Introducing the Red Baron fully loaded hand-tossed style pizza. Share something awesome. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, the podcast channel in the New Books Network that offers interviews with philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. I'm Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese. In 1975, Jerry Fodor published a book entitled The Language of Thought, which is considered one of the most important books in philosophy of mind and cognitive science of the last 50 years or so. This book helped launch what became known as the classical computational theory of the mind, in which thinking was theorized as the manipulation of symbols according to rules or algorithms. Computationalism was seen as an acceptably materialist alternative to the behavioristic psychology of John Watson and B.F. Skinner. Fodor argued that certain features of human thought required that any human-like computational cognitive system had to have a structured format analogous to the structure of natural languages, as opposed to, say, the unstructured format of an image. Only if thoughts had a sentence-like structure could we explain why we can all understand and produce sentences no one has ever used or spoken before, and why someone who can understand a sentence that has a particular syntactic structure and meaning can also understand a certain class of systematic transformations of that sentence. In short, it could explain the features of human thought known as productivity and systematicity. Thus, according to Fodor, we must think in a language of thought, sometimes called mentalese. Classical computationalism has always had its critics, of course, most notably connectionist or neural network modelers such as Paul Smolensky or David Rummelhart, who defended a more brain-like computing system consisting of simple nodes and their connections, without any obvious internal structure at all. But strangely enough, since 1975, Fodor himself has argued that the computational model couldn't explain key features and kinds of reasoning, like making plans for the future or making decisions quickly. And he has also argued against the idea that neuroscience had anything to do with understanding the mind, an idea that motivates a great deal of research in cognitive science today. In short, Fodor himself helped undermine the dominance of the classical computational model that he played such an important role in founding. In today's interview, we'll be talking with Susan Schneider about her new book, The Language of Thought, A New Philosophical Direction, just out from MIT Press. Professor Schneider was a doctoral student of Fodor's and now teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. In her book, Schneider undertakes the task of providing the language of thought hypothesis with a stronger theoretical foundation, one in which there is a strong link between the computational model and neuroscience, and in which the model can help explain central cognitive capacities. On her view, the language of thought model has suffered from being underdeveloped in critical ways, and her goal is to show how the hypothesis and the classical computational model in general can be modified to 
remain a vital contender in contemporary cognitive science. Let's get Susan on the line to make her case. Hi, Susan, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Uh, so today we're talking with Susan Schneider uh, about her new book, uh, Language of Thought, A New Philosophical Direction. Um, so Susan, before we begin talking about the contents of the book, um, maybe you can say a word about um, sort of your background in philosophy and philosophy of mind in particular, and also your connection with Fodor, because I understand um, he was your dissertation advisor. Sure. So um, my main research contributions have been in the subfields of philosophy of mind, metaphysics, and philosophy of cognitive science, which, of course, is closely related to philosophy of mind. Um, Most of my work falls into two broad categories. First, in um, the book, The Language of Thought, which we're talking about today, and in related papers, I rethink the Language of Thought program. And here, I refashion Lott's approach to concepts, neuroscience, computation, and more. And second, I've worked on various metaphysical categories, ranging from modality to um, the nature of properties. My recent focus is in the area of the metaphysics of mind in particular, where I'm right in the middle of another book called The Mind-Body Problem, Rethinking the Solution Space, which will be for Oxford University Press, which is actually about the nature of substance and properties and how it relates to the mind-body problem. Um, So I was, as student said, I I, um, was working with Jerry Fodor, and he was my dissertation advisor. So um, he basically inspired the present book. He was wonderful to debate with. And In the midst of working on my dissertation, I began to develop my own views on the subject. And for about five years, I grappled with various issues, which basically originated with those debates when I was in graduate school and ended up writing this book. So I'm very grateful to him, even though um, I'm sure he would vehemently disagree with much of this book. Um, Um, This book, book, the one we're about to talk about, or the one that you're now writing? The Language of Thought book. Oh, okay. Yes, definitely. Well, you say, you know, in the very beginning that uh, the book would not have come out if, if you hadn't been more stubborn than he was, right? That's exactly right. Um, Fodor and I would argue in his office for three-hour blocks, and both of us would not budge. And so I think this book is very much a long diatribe on why I disagree with him. Well, how did you get into philosophy and, and philosophy mind um, to begin with? Um, well, I I went to Eastern Europe as an exchange student. I was actually an economics major at UC Berkeley, um, but they offered philosophy courses there in Eastern Europe, and some of the professors were actually quite fabulous. They worked in the continental tradition. Um, So I took a course on Michel Foucault and Martin Heidegger and found that to be really interesting. And then when I went back to UC Berkeley, I took a course with Bert Dreyfus um, and he got me hooked on philosophy. So I went to graduate school in philosophy with only a few um, undergraduate courses in it. Um, And then somehow I found analytic philosophy and really loved it and decided I was um, going to pursue philosophy of mind. Okay, so um, along those lines, um, you are, in this book, um, sort of from an overall point of view, you're, you're trying to shore up the language of thought hypothesis. Um, your view is not so much that it's inadequate, um, but that it's been you know underdeveloped or under-theorized. Um, so before we get into exactly you know, how you shore up its foundations. Um, Can you just sort of explain the basics of the hypothesis um, and why it's still uh, a model of cognition worth fighting for? Sure. So according to the Language of Thought program, conceptual thinking occurs in an internal language-like representational medium. However, This language is not equivalent to any spoken language. 
the lot hypothesis holds that the mind has numerous words or what are called symbols that combine into mental sentences according to the grammatical principles of the language. So when one thinks, one is engaged in the algorithmic processing of strings of these mental symbols. So the philosophical literature on Lot generally focuses on the language of thought program as it's developed by Fodor, in which the idea that we think in an inner symbolic language is developed in tandem with a constellation of related issues such as the nature of meaning, modularity, concepts, and more. But in my book, I refashion the language of thought approach, offering a different framework than what Fodor developed originally, one that seeks integration with neuroscience and basically tries to overcome Fodor's pessimism about computation um, and develops a new account of concepts, mental symbols, and modes of presentation. So on my view, this new lot is worth fighting for, whereas the lot that Fodor has been developing, especially in the last 20 years, is is not, because I think it's actually the wrong direction to take the language of thought approach. Let me um, put the language of thought hypothesis in the broader context of, of computational theories. Um, I wasn't clear in the book uh, whether by a what exactly you meant by a computational theory, which is generally a broader category than just sort of the classical computational theory, which includes the language of thought as a part of it. I mean, so how do you how do you see this within the broader ter- terrain of information processing models of cognition? Yeah. So. Um, the question, what is computation, is a really rich um, question, and I take an inclusive approach. But as I say in the book, when I'm talking about a computational theory of the mind, since the book's on the language of thought, what I'm looking for is an approach that takes there to be the algorithmic manipulation of mental symbols. Um, now, that approach can be compatible with other approaches, um, you know, for example, a connectionist or neural network approach, on my view, is actually quite compatible with the language of thought, depending upon the connectionist model we're talking about. But by computation, what I mean is the idea that when we think we manipulate mental symbols according to rules, where I understand those mental symbols to be something like concepts or inner words in the language of thought, and where the rules are things which are discovered by a completed cognitive science. So what it, what are the main uh, motivations for that general lot view to begin with? Well, the main motivations have to do with the combinatorial nature of thought. So thought seems to be language-like in the sense that given a finite stock of words or concepts, we can combine them in accordance with grammatical rules. Now, of course, one might say, well, we do that using natural language, English or whatever it is that we have learned, um, you know, from children to speak. But the objection here is that it seems like there's something which goes beyond our knowledge of natural language. And while I'm open to the idea that language is very important for conceptual thought. Um, You know, we can go into that later if you'd like. I believe that there's something which comes before our thinking in natural language or our use of natural language, and that that's something like a language of thought, and that that characterizes the sort of thinking that we embark upon when we're using our, say, prefrontal cortex or engaged in what we might call higher cognitive activities. Whereas I actually am open to the idea that when it comes to sensory processing, there are other computational approaches which can be highly informative and that that need not be anything like a language-like process. So in, in effect, that seems to kind of turn around Fodor's own 
correct me if I'm wrong, his own view that uh, the central cognitive processes are precisely the ones where the computational model, the classical computational model won't work, whereas possibly at the modules, you know, the peripheral sensory areas, it might. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I find it incredibly puzzling that Fodor would even make that claim because I think claiming that higher cognitive function is not computational or that he cannot understand how it could be computational undermines the lot approach entirely because the language of thought approach is appealed to precisely to explain conceptual thought. So that's one reason why I spend a few chapters responding to Fodor's pessimism about computation as an approach to higher cognitive function. And I try to develop a computational theory for the language of thought because Fodor basically has stuck his head in the sand concerning a lot of the recent research um, on higher cognitive function because he seems to be more concerned that there are some in-principle arguments suggesting that cognition is likely to be non-computational. Could you um, say a word then about, you raised, uh, you, you raised two problems. Uh, one you call the, pro- the problem of globa- globality and the other the problem of relevance. Um, could you say a word about each of those problems and, and how, you, um, how you deal with them? Sure. So, Fodor's concerned, as you note, with two problems that he believes indicate that cognition is likely to be non-computational. And from these problems, he concludes that cognitive science should actually stop researching higher cognitive function. He says that in his book, The Mind Doesn't Work That Way, and he believes that cognitive science should be limited to the modules, or for him, the sensory periphery. Um, So the first sort of problem concerns what he has called global properties, features that a mental sentence has, which depends on how the sentence interacts with a larger plan, such as a plan to, say, go to Starbucks, rather than the type identity of just the sentence alone. And the second problem concerns what many people have called the relevance problem, which is probably more familiar to the listeners. And this is the problem of whether and how humans determine what is relevant in a computational manner. So Fodor believes that we don't have a clue how humans determine what is relevant to what, and that existing computational accounts of relevance fail. And for this reason, he believes that cognition is likely to be non-computational or maybe more you know, uh, more fairly, we just don't have a clue what a computational theory would look like. And as noted, I believe that undermines the lot approach because the language of thought approach is claiming that conceptual thought is computational. And in fact, I believe that was the spirit in which he developed lot in his 1975 book. So basically, I argue against both of these problems. Um, did you want me to yeah, you can uh, yeah tell us a bit about how you what you think the, uh, the responses should be to uh, to globality and relevance. Well, so in a chapter that I wrote with Kirk Ludwig, we criticized the globality argument um, in a what I think is a really simple way. It seems like every way of constructing the argument is just a non-starter. There's a flawed premise, um, and so. You know, unless Fodor could come up with an argument which is more compelling, I see no reason to believe that the presence of global properties is a phenomenon that we should even worry about. Um, a mental sentence can, in fact, contribute differently to different plans depending upon the nature of the plans, because um, in measuring the syntactic contribution, we look at the content of the plans as well as the content of the sentence alone. So I just think that the the problem itself is poorly formed. Now, I believe, in contrast, that the relevance problem is actually a very serious research issue. Could, let me just interrupt you for a second. If, could you give an example of the 
you know, just a plain, ordinary example of the of the globality problem and, and why it really isn't a problem. Sure. So Fodor's own example is an example of a plan to go sailing. Suppose that you learn that it's windy the day that you're intending to go sailing. So you have some sentence in the language of thought that it will be windy tomorrow. And you add that to your plan to go sailing tomorrow and you realize that it's made the plan highly complicated. In contrast, if you add that very same sentence in the language of thought to your plan to go to Rome next year, it doesn't seem to complicate the plan at all. And so on that basis, he was concerned that computation couldn't be merely a matter of the type identity of the string of symbols in that one sentence that it's going to be windy tomorrow. But the problem here is that we have, in just ordinary logic, situations when the addition of one line to a proof brings about a contradiction in the context of one proof and doesn't bring about a contradiction in the context of another. I mean, this is a simple matter of the simplicity or complexity contribution being determined not just by the sentence in question alone, but by the sentence together with the rules as well as the other, say, um, mental sentences invoked. So I think the argument's just simply poorly formed. The issues grow very complex because we had to reframe the argument um, to deal with the variety of responses. But, uh, you know, Fodor hasn't responded, and I've seen no viable reframing of the argument. So how about uh, the relevance problem? The relevance problem I found to be far more interesting um, because it engages with research in cognitive science. And, of course, researchers are concerned, say, how to generate a computer which can determine what is relevant in a timely way. Um, Fodor was very skeptical that computation could be relevant, um, excuse me, that we could determine what is relevant in a way that is compatible with our brains being computational. So he said humans determine what's relevant all the time. Look at the failure of artificial intelligence in the past. Therefore, since we have no clue how relevance could be computational, it's likely that um, conceptual thought is non-computational. Now, I think the presence of IBM's Watson, for instance, indicates that AI is no longer a joke the way it was in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, one point here is that programmers are actually getting better in figuring out how to program a system that determines what is relevant to what. But even going beyond the issue of the development of AI, the important issue here is that cognitive science can determine how it is that humans compute what is relevant to what, and that can turn out to be a computational process. So in the book, I actually look at um, a few accounts of how humans determine what is relevant in a computational vein. So I I think Fodor probably got persuaded by the relevance problem based on failures of artificial intelligence in the 70s and 80s. But nowadays, there's so much intriguing work, both on getting machines to determine what's relevant and on figuring out how humans do it that support computationalism that I think dismissing a computational account of higher cognitive function on those grounds is is actually the wrong approach. So, so are you saying that um, if you have the right heuristics then computationalism is perfectly fine within those boundaries established by the, by, by the heuristics? Sure. Um, I think that we do have heuristics that we employ all the time and that that's perfectly compatible with computationalism. So the approach that is compatible with the language of thought is to say, okay, let's find out what algorithms the brain runs when it determines what is relevant to what. And there is existing work out there, which I believe is promising, such as, for example, the global workspace view, in which I talk about in chapter two of the book. And so for me, instead of just 
being pessimistic and then trying to venture lot in the face of pessimism about computation, which I think is an unstable position to begin with, what one needs to do is engage with current work in neuroscience and other fields and mine those approaches to illustrate how it is that the brain determines what is relevant to what and bring that to bear on developing a computational theory of cognition for the language of thought. So that's what I tried to do in chapter two of the book. Okay, so one, one of the, you mentioned two things that um, one I should probably get to right away, and another to, to return to. The one to return to, I think, would be the the mention you made of the global workspace model. Um, but before we get to that, you also mentioned about um, when talking about globality, the idea of the type identity of sentences, um, and one of the this is a you know, key aspect of the book um, that you considered was one of the main areas in which Lot was under-theorized was in, you know, determining the nature of the symbols in the language of thought. Um, and there were two sorts of, two, two distinct worries that you raised. Um, one is the idea of, you know, how are these symbols individuated? Um, you know, how how you determine when you have one symbol, when you have two um, or three or more, um, and um, and another is their the meaning, um, and in particular their the relation of these symbols to the things in the world that the mental symbols um, are taken to represent. Um, so if we take each of these in turn, um, can you? You describe your view regarding the individuation problem as that in which um, the sentences, the symbols or sentences um, in the language of thought are typed by their uh, total computational role. Um, So could you um, tell us a little bit about that solution to it? Sure. And before I delve into that, maybe I should say a little bit about the significance of the issue of symbol individuation. Um, Because I think it's at the very core of the language of thought program, because Locke claims that thinking is the manipulation of mental symbols according to rules, where, as I've noted, these mental symbols are something like inner words. So they're supposed to be Locke's notion of a mental state. And of course, understanding the nature of mental states is the holy grail of philosophy of mind, or one of them anyway. Um, But paradoxically, Despite the import of understanding the nature of mental states, Lott has actually said very little about the nature of symbols. So it's basically said very little about something which is a key component of its position, for its position is that cognition is the symbolic manipulation um, in accordance with mental algorithms. So this is a major flaw at the heart of the Lott program. Lot requires an account of symbol natures to naturalize intentionality, to determine whether the brain even engages in symbolic manipulations to begin with, and to understand how symbols relate to lower-level neurocomputational states. So I try to provide Lot with the much-needed theory of symbols in one chapter of the book. And basically, in the remainder of the book, Um, I illustrate how that alters the language of thought approach in very significant ways that actually challenge much of Fodor's recent development of the language of thought position. So that's the significance of the issue. Basically, symbols are supposed to be mental states that are summoned to explain the nature of mind on the language of thought position. And so what do I argue? Well, Basically, I argue that um, Lot requires a theory that types tokens by sameness and difference of total computational role, where the computational role of a symbol is understood as the role it plays in the algorithms of a completed cognitive science. So um, I do this in Chapter 4, where I provide three arguments for the individuation of symbols by their total computational roles. The first of these arguments claims that classicism requires that primitive symbols be typed in this manner. The second argument 
um, urges that without this manner of symbol individuation, there would be cognitive processing that fails to supervene on symbols together with the rules. That is the rules of composition and other algorithms. So this situation is very problematic for Lot, for Lot and the related doctrine of the classical computational theory of mind urges that cognitive processing just is the processing of mental symbols according to rules. And finally, the third argument says that cognitive science needs a natural kind that is typed by total computational role. Otherwise, either cognitive science will be incomplete or its generalizations will have counterexamples. So if any of these arguments are correct, um, my theory of symbols is non-negotiable for Lot. Um, so if Lot is to appeal to symbols at all, which of course it must because the appeal to symbols is at the heart of its position, then like it or not, symbols must be individuated by their total computational role. Well, why their total computational role as opposed to just um, just part of it, you know, a sort of molecularist position where, you know, the the relationship between a particular symbol uh, is, helps the relationships that the particular symbol has to to some of um, the other symbols with it with with which it interacts, you know, via algorithms. Um, they matter for typing it, but not every single algorithm and every and therefore every other symbol in the network. That's a really good question. And in fact, um, in one chapter of the book, the chapter that comes before the development of the positive view of symbols, I talk extensively about the molecularist position as well as other alternatives. Um, you know, part of my argument for my own position involves an extensive attack on the viability of the alternatives because I do think that actually individuating symbols by their total computational role comes with problems, which you can talk about shortly. Molecularism, I think, is the most natural alternative. Um, So listeners who are familiar with debates on content, the nature of mental content, might recall approaches to mental content that try to individuate content functionally by the functional role the content plays in a given system say, with respect to inputs, outputs, and other mental states. The molecularist approaches urged that not every functional role is relevant to the individuation of content. Only certain elements of the functional role um, are relevant to the individuation of content. Similarly, a molecularist about symbols would urge that we should just focus on a few um, elements of the total computational role of the symbol for the purpose of individuating the symbol, for the purpose of getting the type identity of the symbol. And the other computational factors should just drop out of the picture. So that way, different individuals can share the same mental symbol. So you and I can both, say, have the very same inner symbol for coffee. So well, it's it's not just um I mean that's an important problem too but it's it's also the sense that um you know my say my symbol for cat right I mean it, it, it plausibly um what makes it a symbol for cat and when I have another symbol for cat and what makes it different from a symbol for dog um it can be typed by, say, relations to dogs or to my symbol for mammal or my symbol for mouse or my symbol for my own cat and, you know, some other things, you know, perhaps pet. Um, but it it's, it's just seems implausible. And I guess this is the plaus- this is the what drives the, mo- the molecularist position. It just seems really implausible that my symbol for cat, has anything to do with, say, my symbol for, I don't know, democracy or um, black holes or something or jumping or jumping rope or anything. I mean, it it just seems crazy um, that my symbol for cat depends for its 
identity as a token of cat on all these things that have absolutely nothing to do with cats in my own thought processes. Yeah, so a couple things in response to that. Um, First off, I think it's a misunderstanding. And I mean, I I know that this happened in the content debates to think that a, a holistic position on the nature of symbols entails that if I have a mental symbol for cat, it's individuated with respect to every other mental symbol. What I'm saying instead is that it's individuated via all of the algorithms that describe my cognitive processing. So if it turn out, turns out that cat has this interesting relation to democracy in, say, my quirky case, then it would be the case that those algorithms would encode that relationship. But say, in most people's eyes, um, their mental symbols for cat have nothing to do with democracy, and that too would be encoded given their own um, algorithms. So what I'm claiming is something slightly different than the usual formulation of um, concept or symbol or content holism. I'm claiming that symbols are individuated with respect to all of the algorithms that characterize the given cognitive system. So that's the first response. Um, But the second concern is that um, suppose one objects to that, well, okay, but still, why should it be the case that your symbol for cat is individuated with respect to all of the algorithms um, that it figures in? that are described by, say, a completed cognitive science. And the answer here is that if we fail to be sensitive to the computationally relevant causal properties of the symbol, then we end up with all sorts of weird cases in which individuals do not behave as the computational predictions claim they would behave. And I think when we're talking about generating a theory of symbols, um, we need to talk about generating a theory of the nature of modes of presentation and modes of presentation need to be sensitive to finely grained differences um, that in such a way that they can encode exactly the causation of thought and behavior. Um, I think no other approach to modes of presentation will do the trick. So that's my response to molecularism. I take it very seriously in the book. I spend a lot of time discussing it and defending my strong position that symbols need to be individuated by their total computational role. Okay, so um, you you did raise uh, before uh, another issue and started to explain um, your answer, which is, you know, obviously if if people if two two people have uh, different total algorithms, right, um, then, of course, uh, no two people with different algorithms, of course, um, will ever th- think exactly the same thing. And, um, and so that seems to be a bizarre kind of consequence of the total computational role um, hypothesis that you put forward. Exactly. Um, In fact, I alluded to problems with my position earlier, and that's something which I was very concerned about in the book, and I spent, I believe, an entire chapter responding to. Um, So I was very grateful to both Jerry Fodor and Jesse Prince for making these objections early on to my position, and also to really interesting work by Murat Idide on this topic, which I was able to read. Um, their, basically their objections to this kind of position allowed me to spend a lot of time devising responses. And my, I guess my first response is that there's so much individuation, excuse me, so much individual variation in higher cognitive function and just how, how we encode concepts that why would we expect they're not? to be all these great individual differences when it comes to symbolic computation. Um, I mean, you know, that's something which a lot of neuroscientists are talking about right now, that everybody is so different at the cognitive level. Um, It's very difficult to generate 
theories in which individuals precisely think in the same manner. I don't think we do think in the same manner. Um, but there is a sense in which, say, when you and I think about coffee <laughs> or have a coffee symbol, we do share a thought. Um, so those thoughts have the same aboutness. And the language of thought approach has for a long time been interested in the nature of meaning and has a referential approach to the nature of meaning, which I draw from in this book to develop an account in which thoughts have the same aboutness, despite the fact that they technically are different symbols um, and different modes of presentation. Um, I also explain how it is that psychological explanation is possible, despite the fact that there's so much individual variation in the symbols that we have. Um, so, for example, I indicate that functional decomposition itself, which is, I think, you know, a key method in cognitive science to explaining the workings of cognition, um, is entirely indifferent to the precise symbols that we have. It abstracts away from that in describing the causal functioning of cognition. Um, and, uh, you know, basically I have many, many responses, which I delve into in that one chapter, um, you know, generalizations, which are insensitive to the pre precise symbols what we, that we have, but which quantify over symbols in general. So an example of this would be the famous Miller generalization about the magical number seven plus or minus two that is the number of variables which we're able to store in working memory. Um, you know, these are the kinds of generalizations which apply to everybody, right? But they're not sensitive to the very, the precise symbols that we have. They just quantify over symbols in general. So let me, um, can I raise something? This idea just sort of occurred to me as you were explaining your view. Um, the language of thought hypothesis is within a sort of general realism about the mind, um, you know, that there really are these mental symbols in your head. You know, at some level, of course, they're composed of neurons and neurophysiology and neural processes, but, um, but they're real, right? And it's part of Fodor's intentional realism. Um, but one of the things that I'm I'm now wondering is um, if psychological generalizations um, abstract away from the precise way in which symbols are typed in each individual's language of thought or in each ind individual psychology as given in its the total set of algorithms that describe that psychology. Um, if, if psychology actually abstracts away from that, um, that seems to undermine the motivation, at least, for claiming that these mental symbols, um, you know, as semantically interpretable, you know, causally efficacious, you know, items in your head, um, that they really, that they have to be real. I mean, in a sense, it, it's good enough that you can describe people Mm -hmm. um, in these, you know, in in sort of general in these general ways, um, and it's good enough to say that, uh, yeah, there's a a, a computational level um, of you know we can call them symbols, but we actually don't really need to call them symbols uh, because the content is something that's more abstract than we need anyway. So why bother with being a realist about a language of thought hypothesis, um, you know, given that psychology has to generalize over lots of different languages of thought or different, you know, instances of language of, of thought. Sure. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so in the book, I talk about the use for lot symbols, um, and one use is take the Miller generalization. It's still quantif there, it's quantifying over symbols. Okay, it's just not quantifying 
over them by their particular types. So we still do need symbols in that context. Another context is to detail the idiosyncratic working of a particular system. Um, it's just that that is not a situation in which we actually need shared symbols. So I think symbols are important to cognitive science if they exist. I mean, I think it's an empirical question, um, but I think if Lot's right, they clearly have an important role in cognitive science. Even if cognitive science doesn't require that there be shared symbols. Um, also, philosophically speaking, I think if Lot's right that there truly are mental symbols, then we can use it to generate a theory of modes of presentation and mental states, which is naturalistic. It gives us a sense of how thinking could actually be part of the domain that science investigates. So I think a realism is attractive for that reason. Now, I would wonder, you know, for someone like you who ventures this sort of rejection of realism, if you would also feel that way about neurons or um, computational neuroscience or just the higher level stuff. Because, see, for me, if I'm willing to be a realist about the claims of neuroscience, then I would also seek out an account of concepts which is developed in tandem with the work in neuroscience. So I would want to develop Lot in a realist vein insofar as I was going to believe it at all. Right. You know, I, 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 my sympathies are with realism too. So I was just sort of raising a, you know, just a worry that, you know, by, by responding to the problem of, you know, how you get generalizations over people who have symbols in their language of thought that are different because they're typed by total computational role and the top and the total computational role for different people differs right so you have to abstract away from from them in order to get the generalizations that sort of response seemed to have some sort of attention with the idea that these mental symbols that there's you know common there's a common ground to them a common content um, that is also as as real as the you know syntax itself. I agree. I think that that's an excellent point. Um, I mean, I think I have a response to it, but I mean, I think it makes perfect sense that once one argues that we don't need shared symbols to do cognitive science or to even arrive at a sense in which we share thoughts, then the natural worry is, well, why do we need symbols at all? Um, but I believe that there are reasons for appealing to symbols nevertheless. Um, that being said, I think it's an empirical question whether there really are symbols in the brain. And let me just indicate, um, you know, my interest in computational neuroscience, because I think at the end of the day, what people need to do is figure out how symbols, when individuated in the way that I urge in the book via their total computational role, how they relate to natural kinds in a completed computational neuroscience. I mean, if, if there's no clear way in which lot symbols mesh with entities invoked at the lower level, then I would urge an eliminativism about symbols. We would need to seek out a different account of how thinking is actually a neural process. So I do believe that that's something which I can't do. <laughs> At least not <laughs> you know, today. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I saw the book as engaging in conceptual ground clearing, um, trying to bring Locke more up to date with work in contemporary neuroscience and showing how it could be the case that the Lot approach is feasible. Um, and I think the only way that it would be a feasible approach is if it looks to neuroscience and tries to work with it instead of being antagonistic toward it, um, as unfortunately Fodor has been in the last um, several decades in his own development of Lot. Well, that's, um, why don't we talk about that a little bit more? Let me follow up. Um, uh, how do you see your reconfiguration um, 
affecting the relationship between Lot and neuroscience, which, as you as you just made clear, I mean, Fodor famously, you know, held that psychology is, you know, autonomous in, in that specific way. You know, you don't ever need to look to neuroscience to help you develop a adequate psychology or human psychology. Um, how do you see your view, you know, bringing those two sides closer? Yeah, the antagonism is amusing, but quite unfortunate. I mean, some famous stories of Fodor ranting about the brain. Um, you know, I have my own set of experiences from when I was his graduate student. Um, he certainly does not like neuroscience, but pro- other proponents of Lot do not approach the language of thought in that way. An example would be Gary Marcus, and another example is Steven Pinker. So, you know, inside psychology, people developing the language of thought approach talk about neuroscience all the time, and they certainly don't see their work as being antagonistic toward neuroscience. But a computational approach technically abstracts away from neuroscience in one sense. If we could, at some point, develop cognition in a non-neural substrate, the claim is it would nevertheless be a computational theory. And in principle, a system which is non-neural, say an AI system, like an ultra-sophisticated version of Watson, could think. Um, Now, of course, that's I'm abstracting away from issues involving consciousness. um, But the idea here is that if one's a functionalist, the way I am in the book, for example, one is friendly to the idea that insofar as mental states... um, are individuated by the role they play in a very sophisticated computational system, there could, in principle, be non-neural things which think. So there is an interesting sense in which the language of thought approach does abstract away from neuroscience, but nevertheless, I think it's a huge mistake to ignore neuroscience the way voter has, um, and to feel antagonistic toward it. So the brain is the best computational device we have. So we better study it with great interest to understand what algorithms the brain is running and to develop a language of thought approach. So that's why in chapter two of the book, I basically mine all sorts of approaches in neuroscience to devise a theory of cognition for law. Um, so I actually need to use neuroscience to fashion a theory of what Locke calls its central system, the domain um, underwriting higher cognitive function. Relatedly, um, I need neuroscience in my development of Locke to naturalize intentionality. So it can't be the case, as I mentioned before, that symbols just float freely, metaphysically speaking, and have no relation to what's going on in the brain neurally. If lot's going to work, then we need to understand how symbols relate to, you know, what is studied by computational neuroscience um, and other domains of neuroscience. So we have to be keenly interested in neuroscience for lot to succeed. So in some, there is and isn't a sense in which computational approaches need to borrow from neuroscience, or at least there's a deep relationship between lot and neuroscience it's very nuanced that's the way i would put it so you um you adopt the global workspace theory which is you know at least i tend to associate with you know dennett's theory of of consciousness um you would you use the global workspace theory or at least some aspects of it um to in, in part of your redevelopment of the of the language of thought hypothesis, so there's there's one way in which, on your view, neuroscience or theories about you know neuroscience and how the brain works, uh, you know, seem to play a, a critical role within the development of what's essentially a, a theory of psychology. Could you um, tell us a bit about how you use the global workspace model within? the language of thought model. Sure. Um, So the global workspace view was first developed by um, Bernard Bars, 
way back, I believe, in around 1987. He, he's a psychologist, and his original book on the subject is actually extremely insightful. It was developed as a theory of consciousness, and in Barr's own work, um, it's an account of basically the contents of consciousness and how it is that we can best understand the relationship between consciousness, working memory, and attention. And as I read the literature surrounding the global workspace approach by the neuroscientists in particular, I started to notice a connection to issues such as how um, humans determine what is relevant in a computational manner. So here I'm referring back to what we've called the relevance problem, in which for Fodor was one reason why cognition is likely to be non-computational. Um, so what I did was, in answering Fodor's concerns about relevance, I used the global workspace approach, and then I realized, hey, you could actually mine this as the beginnings of an account of how cognition is computational. So as a more general approach that doesn't just talk about relevance, but talks more broadly about cognition itself. So that's what I did, and I, I really enjoyed immersing myself in the neuroscience literature. Um, and of course, it's only the beginning of the story about how cognition works, but I saw my job as primarily methodological to illustrate how lot should be developed, that it should look to um, the most recent work in cognitive and computational neuroscience and also psychology um, in order to explain how cognition could be computational rather than venturing pessimism the way that Fodor did, which I think actually works against the best interests of the language of thought approach because it suggests that the language of thought is not, in fact, a computational account which, you know, the, the heart of the language of thought view was, in fact, that it was supposed to be a computational account of, of the nature of thought. So um, I think we're, we're getting close to the end here. So let me turn to the issue of uh, the semantics of the symbols, um, which you get to towards, uh, towards the end of the book. Um, and you discuss Frege cases, and you introduce your view of what you call pragmatic atomism. Um, I was wondering if you could say a word about, um, well, explain what your pragmatic pragmatic atomism um, is for for the symbols in the language of thought. Sure. Um, yeah, that was one of my most recent chapters, and I really enjoyed thinking about that because it's. I believe that. What I did there was develop an account of the nature of concepts, um, which is an alternative to Fodor's approach, which is called conceptual atomism. So I suggest that the language of thought approach actually needs a different approach and that the language of thought is not, as Fodor has urged, an approach which has to be antagonistic toward um, pragmatism. So let me say a little first about what Fodor's own view is, and then explain what my position of concept pragmatism is. And then I'd also like to say something about how it could be summoned as an account of concepts for people who don't even like the language of thought. So, for example, a connectionist who's interested in devising a theory of concepts um, and who also shares interest in the nature of meaning could actually mine this sort of approach as a sort of two-tiered or two-factor theory of concepts um, so conceptual atomism, as Fodor understands it, holds that um, lexical concepts like dog or cat lack semantic structure, and in this sense, they're atoms. So that's where the expression conceptual atomism comes from. It further holds that a concept is individuated by two components, its broad content and its symbol type. So the broad content is basically just what the symbol refers to. So the broad content of dog is just an entity, dog. Um, and that's a very skeletal account of meaning, which Lot and a lot of other theories appeal to. Um, because symbol natures have basically been neglected by Lot, as I discussed earlier, 
only the semantic dimension of the theory seems to have been developed. So when you think of conceptual atomism, usually think of it as merely a theory in which the nature of a concept is just what it refers to. It's basically what philosophers call a referential approach. Indeed, conceptual atomist concepts are often taken as just being equivalent to broad content, despite the fact that Fodor even says that they're individuated by their symbol types. So on the literature on concepts, um, the Lott program famously opposes pragmatist accounts of the nature of thought, where by pragmatist views... Fodor means claims that one's abilities, such as classificatory or inferential capacities, determine the nature of concepts. And Fodor has written in several books how pragmatism is a catastrophe of analytic philosophy of language and mind um, in the last half of the 20th century. And by pragmatism, he has in mind this very specific position on the nature of concepts and meaning. So what I basically urge in the book is that Lot is actually a pragmatist theory and that the best theory of concepts is one that is what I call concept pragmatism. Um, so in brief, concept pragmatism is, as Fodor claims, the view that a concept's nature is, at least in part, the matter of the role it plays in one's mental life. So notice now that given that I've taken a functionalist or computational role, more specifically, approach to the nature of symbols, it turns out that part of a concept's nature is its symbol type. And since the symbol type has to do with the role the symbol plays in one's cognitive economy, the theory is technically pragmatist. So the traditional war that Fodor has ventured with concept pragmatism is, in fact, a complete mistake. Um, The best construal of Lot is that Lot is a pragmatist theory and that Lot needs a theory of concepts, which is a form of pragmatism. So I think that's philosophically interesting in the sense that it, it helps us to better understand the nature of concepts for the language of thought approach, and it helps us to see past some of the current developments of Lot as a sort of anti-pragmatist theory and move on. Um, And I also urge in the book that you could use this approach to concepts in a way that um, I think is still philosophically useful, even if you don't like the language of thought approach. So you can take a concept's nature to be two-tiered. It could be a matter of its broad content and its computational role, where the computational role is specified instead by a connectionist theory. So you could look at activation patterns in a connectionist network, for example. And I actually think that that's a very useful theory of concepts. I look at different desiderata that people in the concepts literature have ventured forth to explain the nature of concepts. They claim that, you know, concepts must be public. They must um, capture the psychological role that the concept has in the thinker's life and so on. And I urge that my theory of concepts can actually deliver all of the desiderata that you find in some of the key sources on the nature of concepts. So, for example, Jesse Prince's book, Concepts, and Jerry Fodor's book, Um, You know, both of those books, I pay careful attention to their desiderata and urge that my theory of concepts um, can actually satisfy the desiderata that they lay out. So my my impression uh, of your theory was that it was a two factor theory that um, that uh, the semantics of the symbols in the language of thought was partly a matter of their their broad content, right, their relationship to things external to the mind. Um, and also their internal uh, functional role or, or use, if you want to put it even more broadly. Um, is, that, is that a correct interpretation? That's exactly right. And here I remind the reader of two-factor theories of content, which were popularized in the 1980s, which I always thought were quite intriguing, um, where meaning or content was a matter of functional role, together with 
a sort of referential or broad component. Now, in my case, in the case of um, my chapter on concepts, I urge that the functional role is more specifically computational role and that that's not a form of content or meaning. So it's non-semantic. So concepts then have two dimensions. They have a semantic dimension, i.e. the broad content, and also a non-semantic or computational dimension that is the symbol type. And so it's basically a two-factor theory where one of the factors is a meaning and the other one's not, in contrast to the older two-factor views of the 1980s. And I think these views of um, concepts should be developed because I think they deliver a lot of the desiderata. I think all. I'll I'll, I'll, make that claim. I'm sure someone will disagree. But I I think it does quite well and that it should be discussed in the literature on concept individuation. Um, I think it's been ignored. And so I think it could make a useful contribution to that literature. Well, I think we are um, out of time. Um, But I'm sure that the discussion on the language of thought um, and concept individuation and symbols will will definitely definitely continue and will be um, enhanced by your book. Um, So we've been speaking with Susan Schneider. Um, of the University of Pennsylvania about her book, The Language of Thought, A New Philosophical Direction from MIT Press. Um, Thanks a lot, Susan. Oh, thank you so much, Carrie, for all of your wonderful questions. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Professor Susan Schneider from the University of Pennsylvania talking about her new book, The Language of Thought, A New Philosophical Direction. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.